Welcome me into a new Buff Stampede Radio. I hope you checked out our recent podcast with football analyst William Gardner. Today, I'm going to go at it solo. I did a solo pod earlier this summer, got some positive feedback from that. So I decided to go at it alone again. Brian Howell and I are going to do a podcast together before preseason camp begins at CU. Coming up pretty soon, August 4th, we've heard, is most likely going to be the date in which they have their first practice. So uh, slowly but surely, uh, we're getting there. This is the kind of the dog days of summer in terms of college football coverage. Media day for Pac-12 does come up next week as well. Let's not waste any time here. It's going to be a mailbag episode. So let's see what the subscribers of buffstampede.com want me to talk about. First up, NYC Ski Bum asked, thoughts on how long Carl Durrell will let the quarterback competition go into camp? Any chance we see split time during the first few games of the season? Will a decision made before UNC? And along those lines, Andrew S. Buff one asked, when does fall camp start and will you make a prediction on the exact date Carl Durrell announces the starting quarterback? I remember he waited a very long time to announce the 2020 starter. So Andrew S. Buff, I had answered that question. It sounds like August 4th is the start in terms of preseason practices. You're right. They did push that decision late last fall. Sam Neuer was named the starter on October 30th, and CU had that first game against UCLA on November 7th. So that's closer to the opener than, than you typically see in terms of an announcement. This year, CU opens against UNC on the 3rd. So I'm asked to make a prediction here. I guess I'll throw out somewhere around August 23rd. That's almost two weeks, a little bit less than that before the opener. I think that with the situation like what they have right now with Brendan Lewis and JT Shrout, it really being a wide open competition going into camp, you don't want to rush it too much. I think you want to go at least two weeks in. But yeah, you start getting into the heavy game planning you want to have that starter named. Going back to NYC Ski Bum's question about any chance we see split time during the first few games of the season. I can't speak for Carl Durrell and Danny Langsdorf, but I really hope not. I think that sets both quarterbacks up to fail when you do that. What's the saying? If you have two quarterbacks, you have none. I do think there is some truth in that in the sense that when you don't give ownership of the offense to one quarterback. You have a hard time with with the other players rallying behind that guy. And and yeah, maybe Brennan Lewis or JT Shroud, whoever wins the starting job might have a shorter leash if it's a really close competition during camp. But I think you want to go into the season having made that decision and having guys be able to rally, rally behind that one guy. You know, we've seen when backup quarterbacks have come into games and haven't been, prepped as the guy leading up to it here the last 15 or so years at CU, that that backup quarterback usually comes in and struggles. So I think you want to throw all the game planning. I mean, don't get me wrong, the backup quarterback still has to get some reps in there and be ready to go. But I don't like the idea of them splitting reps, even if, you know, you're going against a team like UNC that you're expected to beat. I think you want to get that starting quarterback as many reps in that game, because obviously week two is going to be a very daunting challenge with Texas A&M coming in to Colorado playing down in Denver. So uh, I think they, if I had to guess, they'll decide just a little bit earlier than they did last year in terms of, you know, the amount of time before that first game. But I'd be surprised if it happens 
before like the 18th, I think any decision before that would kind of surprise me. I think you want to go at least two weeks into camp. So we'll see. Movie Buff asked, what kind of improvements do you expect to see from Durrell and company? Where can they improve from last year, considering most would give the coaching pretty high marks? I'll answer the last question first in terms of where can they improve from last year? Obviously, I think you look immediately to the defense, given how poor that side of the ball played the last six quarters after Nate Landon went out. And I think the biggest improvement you'll see from them defensively will be that there's going to be less linebackers exploited in pass coverage. I think that was one of the things that really frustrated Carl Durrell late in the season was just guys that were matched up in, in really tough situations. And, and it's football. You're going to have that happen time to time. There's no way around that, especially if you're going to be aggressive at times. But I think that's one area, at least that's one area I expect them to be better at. Uh, what kind of improvements do you expect to see? Just in general, I, I think the standards are being set really high with Carl Jarrell. I think you look back to post game of the Alamo Bowl and just seeing the amount of frustration that Carl Jarrell had. That, that had to be very encouraging if you're a CU fan because it would have been easy for him to say, okay, we've met all these challenges with COVID. We made it to a bowl game. Yeah, we didn't perform well against Texas, but we're happy with what we did. That's not what Carl Durrell did. He was frustrated and, and said, hey, we've got a long ways to go. This is unacceptable. So their emphasis on building depth in the program has been noticeable. And, and certainly it helps having the transfer portal and it will help going forward with this one-time transfer rule. But, uh, you know, there, it doesn't seem like hanging on as a useless third stringer is going to cut it anymore with his staff. It's like you're going to be part of the mix and provide quality depth or be a starter or you, you got to kind of move on and, and find a new home. And uh, that opens up scholarships for them to go into the transfer portal, find guys that can you know, fill those gaps like they did this past year with some really high quality guys coming into the program. So that's one thing I see is just the expectations uh, being raised. Mike McIntyre did a really good job of building this program from being, you know, you could argue it was the worst FBS program. I mean, they finished dead last in scoring margin. Mike McIntyre comes in, he does a good job building it up, but you know, when they get beat in the Pac-12 championship game and get beat in the Alamo bowl by Oklahoma state, it wasn't this sense of frustration. Like we saw to Carl Durrell and I get it. It's, you know, they won a Pac-12 South title that year. People, should have been excited about that team. It was a really, really fun year. But I think Carl Drell just has a little bit different expectations for this program going forward than uh, we, we saw with some recent head coaches. And so we'll see how it plays out. Wild Buff asked, where in the world is Coach Chev? He seemed like the Buff's biggest recruiter slash hype man, now is seemingly silent. What's up? So I wouldn't say Coach Chev is silent. Uh, I follow him on Twitter, as I'm sure a lot of you do, and he's still very active on there. A big change happened just in terms of the recruiting philosophy with Carl Durrell. It's very position heavy. And so, yes, Coach Chev has a territory. All these assistant coaches have a territory. But when they identify a prospect as a recruit that they're going to offer a scholarship to, uh, in, in almost every case, it is the position coach that's stepping up and forming that relationship and, and trying to sell that recruit on CU. And the other part of it, maybe even uh, as big a part, is the fact that Cheverini's a, a coordinator now. He's got more on his plate 
than if you're just a receivers coach and, and you're going to be able to spend more time in recruiting. Um, like I said, it's very positional now. And also Chevrini is a full-time coordinator. He, he came in and he was co-coordinator, but you know, Brian Lindgren was obviously doing a lot of that work. And you know, Brian Lindgren wasn't tasked with having to recruit, you know, players at different positions. Danny Langsdorf right now, we see him focus his attention on the quarterbacks. And so Cheverini being the the coordinator and now with the, the recruiting philosophy being position-based as part of that. And also receiver, but wasn't a huge need for them in this 2022 class with eligibility kind of being paused in 2020. You're limited in scholarships and they actually have quite a few young guys in the program at receiver. You'd like to see Coach Chev bringing a blue chipper there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that, that should be your hope as a CU fan. Um, but just to answer this question, uh, there's a couple of things that, that have changed a little bit in terms of Chev's responsibilities. And then also, I mean, when he was recruiting under McIntyre, he was having to do a lot of the recruiting and that's just not the way it's structured with this current staff. Abe Froman nine asked, how privy are you to CU's recruiting board since you've been covering the team, which commits have been at slash near the top? Um, I have sources with recruiting and have an idea what's going on. Um, I don't have access to their recruiting board. Uh, and, and with recruiting, things are so fluid. I mean, things change sometimes uh, in the matter of a couple hours. So uh, it's always kind of evolving um, in terms of the best commits and at or near the top. You know, it's crazy. You look back at most of CU's top 25 rated signees in the modern era in most of those guys have not lived up to expectations in terms of just covering the team in which recruitment created the most hype. It, you have to go back to Daryl Scott in that 2008 class with it coming down to Texas and CU. And that was a crazy few weeks leading up to that, that announcement. Uh, he picked CU. I, I get a couple death threats from Texas fans. <laughs> One said, uh, bring your ass to Austin and you won't leave alive. I mean, it was that crazy. That's how, into it that that Texas fan base was and, and CU fans were, were nuts about it and you know starting to feel like things were in the right direction under Dan Hawkins uh unfortunately that didn't pan out Ryan Miller's commitment was huge the year prior to that in 2007 I think Ryan Miller's the last five-star recruit the state of Colorado has produced I have to go back and look at that but that was a big day as well I did a story back in May where I broke down the top five underrated CU signees in the top five overrated CU signees in the 2000s. And I had Rodney Stewart, David Bakhtiari, Carson Wells, Derek McCarty, and Brian Ewu, obviously in that most underrated category. And then I had Scott Yuri Wright, Andre Simmons, Lynn Katoa, and Marcus Houston as the most overrated. I know some people took uh, exception to the Marcus Houston pick just because he had shown some big time potential early in his career before getting hurt. But it's tough to answer that question in terms of which commits have been at or near the top, just because uh, a lot of the guys fans griped about ended up being pretty good. And then uh, some of the higher rated guys didn't pan out very well. Uh, but Daryl Scott recruitment, I, I don't know. I don't know if I want anything to top that. That was kind of nuts. Go Buffs one asked, you said in a post recently that you are indeed a CU fan. As a CU fan, are you concerned about recruiting? So we had a poster put on the board recently, a post about let's get to know each other a little bit better in terms of where are you from? When did you become a CU fan? Your favorite players of all time? 
what other teams aside from CU do you root for. It was kind of a cool thread to read through. Uh, but I also put without a caveat that my current job does not allow me to wear a fan hat. So to answer that initial question, it would be a disservice if I'm sitting here with my pom-poms out. That's not what you guys want from a coverage standpoint. So I don't consider myself a fan in that sense, uh, day-to-day. I, I got to look at it more analytically. And you know, certainly when the team is doing well, it's a lot more fun. You're around CU staffers, coaches, players, uh, you know, I, I talk to all these kids when they're recruits. And so you get to know a lot of them and you want the best for them. And, you know, you, you hate traveling to a game to cover a game and they get blown out. It's not a fun experience. So hopefully CU wins every game. It, it will be a fun gig for me, but just in terms of, um, I, I don't wear that fan hat in terms of the question about being concerned about recruiting. Uh, I would say not particularly the staff doesn't have a long enough track record, positive or negative with evaluation. You know, CU has been the first to offer a lot of prospects that have gone on to blow up. So that tends to make you think that this staff is pretty darn good at evaluating recruits. Carlton Madden is probably the easiest example since he was committed early on. You know, it was, I mentioned this, I think on the last podcast, you know, fans were frustrated that they're taking this kid from Georgia that wasn't able to play on varsity as a junior because of a transfer ruling. And then he goes out to some camps in June and Georgia offers him and some other power five schools and he decommits and the sky's falling then as well. So you can't have it both ways. I would say if the staff is here for three or four years and you're not seeing a lot of these guys that didn't have the long list of power five offers can out, then, then I think that becomes more of a criticism. High school signees are, are going to be the foundation of a program. I'll use Christian Gonzalez as an example. In a perfect world, you bring in a kid from high school. He plays as a true freshman, grows tremendously that year, and he's going to have a long career and not transfer. And though those are the guys you want to build your program around. But the reality is a lot of kids are going to be transferring here, with, especially with the one-time transfer rule now in. So the transfer portal has kind of changed the overall importance of high school recruiting somewhat. Don't get me wrong. You, every kid you sign, you want to feel good about them. But when you make a mistake, you can fix that mistake a little easier now than, than you could have before. And a lot of the guys we saw transfer into CU's program this past offseason are guys with multiple years of eligibility. So it's not just the Mikhail Onu that comes in for, what was it, like six months and six to eight months, and then they're gone. So a lot of these kids that you bring in as transfers are going to be around. Now you got to find the right guys there. Just overall, uh, you know, I think it's too early with this staff and their track record. Uh, it does seem like they have a good eye for talent. Uh, but until we get a little bit further into this staff's tenure, I'm certainly not going to get concerned about something uh, that we don't know how it's going to pan out. I just mentioned a list of highest rated signees that just haven't panned out at CU. Don't get me wrong. You want to sign blue chip recruits. I'm not saying you want to start you know, going after every low three-star recruit out there, but to answer his question, my concern, I would say no. And uh, the transfer portal is a big part of why, why I'm not. Shine DeBuff asked, true or false, we can begin to see what the quality of a recruiting class will be in July. Maybe for some programs, um, for CU in its current state, I would probably say false. The process has gotten more accelerated with these summer visits. 
obviously more kids are committing early now than ever, but, uh, you know, you could have 11, four star commits right now, but if they go out there in the fall and lay an egg, how many of those recruits are going to stay on, uh, early signing period is still five months away for the 2022 class. So, you know, a lot of things can change. And I, I laid out an example where they could have a bunch of blue chip recruits committed right now, and then they go out and struggle and have a hard time keeping them on. On the flip side, what if CU goes out there and goes to a bowl game this year? They can sell. We've been to a bowl game for the second year in a row for our, for the first time in a really, really long time. Jarrell can sell that, you know, this is, he's been a head coach. If, if that happens, if they go to a bowl game this year, he would have gone to seven bowl games and seven seasons as, as a head coach. That's a pretty darn good track record, especially given, uh, you know, CU's recent history here in terms of his early success. If that, does happen that would allow them to get in on some quality prospects late you know there's always coaching changes and you know also uh again going back they're still five months away you know if you're you're alabama and you're locking up all these blue chip recruits early i mean there's a chance alabama is going to be pretty good this year right so yeah maybe in their case you could kind of see you know how quality their recruiting class is going to be in july and Actually, you don't even have to question that. I don't even have to go to their commitment list to know that it, it's uh, got a lot of star power on it. So uh, to answer his question, I would see you right now would probably say false. But, um, you know, I'm sure there's uh, people with uh, a different opinion out there, and that's fine. St. Pete's Buff asked, in past pods, you gave some funny or behind-the-scenes stories from the Hawkins years. Any similar stories you could share about Mike Mack or Tucker? Yeah, the thing is, I don't like Hawkins, <laughs> so it's easier for me to bring those up. Um, Mike McIntyre was around for a long time. You know, his mood was a little bit unpredictable at times, especially when things were kind of going rough. I mean, you saw him a couple times lose it, uh, uh, you know, with assistant coaches on the sidelines. But generally, he was a he was a good dude. You know, I like Mike McIntyre. One memory I'll, I'll always remember with Mike McIntyre was. And see his most recent win over Nebraska in Lincoln. Obviously, the big LaVisca Chenault catch in the end zone, and then Nebraska fails to come down and tie it up. Uh, there's a tiny tunnel that leads to the visitor's locker room in Memorial Stadium. And, and the press room's kind of at the very end of this hallway. And I happen to be walking back there for post game, and Mike McIntyre came flying into the hallway screaming, hollering, and he jumped on my back and said, what a win, Adam. And that was a great moment uh, just to see the excitement on his face. And, you know, again, like I said earlier, I, I can't really wear my fan hat on a consistent basis, but I've hated Nebraska forever, even before I got, got this gig. So uh, that, that was a cool moment. Like I said, I, I liked Mike McIntyre as a guy, not a flashy guy, you know, not a lot of swagger to him. Like everybody else, I cringed when he brought the Buffalo picture into the press conference the day after Troy Rank reported that he was going to be let go. Uh, I'll just say this for across the board, props in a press conference, never a good idea, never a good idea. Uh, going back to Dan Hawkins, I remember when he was feeling the heat, a couple of times he read letters from parents during a, a Tuesday press lunch. And it's like, uh, just, it, it's cringeworthy. Don't do that. Don't do that. With Mel Tucker, he just wasn't around long enough. I know fans want me to be negative towards him, 
but it was fun covering his program until he took off. You know, I think that's why people were so hurt because they like the guy. It hasn't worked out so well for him at Michigan State. I don't know what the future holds with him there in East Lansing, but uh, I do actually do have a funny story about Mel Tucker, but it's not suitable for the podcast. So if you uh, ever run into me in person, I'll, I'll share it with you. But no, I, I liked Mel Tucker. I think it's time to kind of let go of that stuff, you know, because I, I look at what Carl Durrell is and will be, and it's not flashy like Mel Tucker, but it might be, I feel like there's more substance with, with Carl Durrell. Um, in Mel Tucker, it was, it was a fun experience and it sucked how he left. And, uh, but it may, maybe it's time to move on there. If I think of anything on those two guys in the future, maybe I'll bring it up on the pod. Blue Sky Buff asked, taking a look at our out-of-conference scheduling the next decade, coupled with the nine conference games, is CU scheduling itself out of bowl games? The timing of this is obviously with CU being one of two Pac-12 teams to have multiple Power 5 opponents in their non-conference this year. And for CU, obviously, one of those being a national championship type contender in Texas a and I don't think you'd want to have their non-conference schedule this year every year from just a, a competitive standpoint, at least until you know you get the program to where you're, you're competing for championships. And it's hard to predict because you're, you're scheduling these games you know, 10 years out. It's, it's tough to project where you're going to be in 10 years, right? But to answer your question, are they scheduling themselves out of bowl games? I would say no. Since 2013, CU is actually 19 and four in non-bowl, non-conference games. Now, a lot of those years, Mike McIntyre was here. They they cleaned up non-conference. This year leans a little bit more on the challenging side than than you would like, especially you know what is this Carl Drills season 1.5? I mean, I don't know. He's not a full year, full season into his tenure just because they only played six games last year. So. Not ideal for this year, but in terms of this question, they're not typically scheduling themselves out of bowl games. The issue has been outside of 2016 has been their their conference record. Uh, you got to, you know, do a better job of you know, maybe beat USC once. <laughs> uh, you know, they've done a little bit better job competing with Arizona State here recently. Um, you got to get back to being competitive with Utah. Those games have been tough to watch here the last few years. So I think their issue right now is – getting up to par with some of the better teams in their division, in their conference, more so than non-conference scheduling. I don't think that's been an issue. And if it is an issue, it's very, very, very low down the list of concerns. Pig Dog asked, the CU and Boulder's liberal makeup hamper or energize our recruiting? Does it turn more recruits off who are from conservative upbringings? Or is that not an issue? This is tough to answer just because you know, obviously with a situation like this, it's going to depend on the recruit, right? You know, for conservative upbringings, maybe, I don't know. I, it's not something that I've heard a whole lot. I think the lack of diversity in Boulder hurts more than than Boulder being liberal. From the lack of diversity standpoint, it does help that these guys are insulated is not the right word, but they spend so much time around each other in the facilities, in study hall, in the weight room, practice fields. And, you know, that's where most of their friends are going to come from, their roommates. They're going to go out to eat with those guys and hang out with them. So it's not quite as big an issue as if, let's say you were a conservative minority going to see you as just a regular student. 
that would probably be a tougher deal. Um, so I guess to answer that question, uh, it doesn't hamper their recruiting. What hampers their recruiting is the fact that they just haven't consistently won dating back to late during Gary Barnett's tenure. So that's the issue. Will it turn off, you know, a couple recruits each cycle? I, I guess, you know, you have different people with different beliefs. And so you're, there, there's no program in the country that's going to, is going to be the perfect fit for every recruit out there. That just does not how it works. So you win games. You, I don't think we're getting questions like this for a mailbag, but it, it's a good question to throw out there. It makes you think a little bit, but I don't think that's a major issue. Troutman5 asked, have you had any opportunities over the past 18 years to cover another program? If so, who? First off, Troutman5 is organizing a top golf outing for buffstampede.com subscribers in August. I think we might do it on the 14th, but we haven't got confirmation on that yet. Stay tuned for more details on that. It'd be great to get as many guys from the site together as we can. I have yet to go to Top Golf. I've been meaning to do that ever since that location opened up down in Centennial. There's another one kind of over by Erie Lafayette off I-25. So we're not sure quite when we're going to do that Top Golf outing, but uh, I'm looking forward to that whenever we get it done and organized. But to answer Troutman 5's question, so the, the way this works is I'm in essence an independent contractor. And so, you know, fortunately going back to, to the rivals days and, and now with 24 seven sports, you know, they've been happy with, with our coverage of CU. And so we've signed these long term contracts pretty far out. And so I haven't really been on the market in that sense, going back to when I came out of college back in the summer of 2003, I had some different options that I was looking at back then. Uh, I was looking at possibly taking a job at Rivals HQ in Nashville. Uh, I was looking at, I was offered the Virginia Tech publisher gig, and then the CU publisher gig opened up. And honestly, it was a no-brainer. In fact, I actually, when I was kind of mulling over the Rivals HQ and the, the Virginia Tech gigs, I had mentioned to Noah Stanley, who is with 24-7 Sports Today, uh, was kind of one of my early mentors. And I said to him, Hey, if that, that Colorado gig ever opens up, would you keep me in mind? And it just so happened. I was kind of on track to take the Virginia tech job and actually covered them for a little while. Um, but hadn't moved out to Blacksburg and that's when the CU job opened up and it was, it was a no brainer early on a, a little bit of a learning curve. You know, it's like, I think anybody coming out of college in any job, there's going to be that. Right. So, uh, took a few years to fully grasp, you know, what this job should be and still, you know, far from perfect to try to get better, a little bit better every year. But uh, I've never really ever looked back. It's not a lack of ambition. I just really enjoy this gig and it's a lot of fun. And uh, being a, in my gig, I, you know, I can get as creative as I want, you know, there, there's not someone breathing over my neck every, every day. Now, if, if, we're not doing content, we're not doing a good job, then they're going to have an issue. And, but uh, so far, so good. Yeah. 18 years in and you know, hopefully another 18. So we'll see what the future holds here, but uh, I've not really looked to leave elsewhere. Shine the buff asked now that you're finally alone, let's hear about William Jake chase and Tyler's blooper reels. Goodness blooper reels. I will say 
you know, back in the day, William Ryan Konigsberg and Tyler Ziskin and I would record these podcasts down at Blake Street Tavern. And I'm telling you, some of the conversation we would have before and after we hit record, that would have made for some great content. You know, it's some of that stuff is stuff you're hearing as rumors and you're just kind of stuff you're not really going to want to put on the record. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't say there was any real blooper reel stuff with them. Uh, it's just great to see you know, how well all those guys are doing in life. William Whalen's killing it in the, the wine world. Jake Shapiro, he's doing breaking news for the Denver Post now. Uh, Chase Howell, he's uh, caddying for guys on the Corn Ferry Tour. I know that's his his dream is to be a PGA Tour caddy. He's also doing some sports betting stuff. Tyler Ziskins, he's working his butt off in Boulder with his new job. And that's uh, you know partly why you haven't heard his voice on here much recently. So uh, Ryan Konigsberg, obviously killing it with DNVR. Uh, so it's been great to see all those guys doing well in life. Uh, that's one of the fun things about the pandemic is we had to get so creative and we started doing the sports jeopardy, which, uh, you know, w- was just kind of filling time during the pandemic until we could actually get back to covering real CU sports. And, uh, it was great to catch up with a lot of those guys doing that. Uh, Stanley buff asked, who is your ultimate golf foursome? You can have a caddy too. And you can choose caddies for the others in your foursome. That's a good question. My foursome, I'm going to start it with Paul Pierce. I am a diehard Celtics fan. You know, in my early days, because I was born in 79, I kind of came into the picture as a Celtics fan towards the end of the big three era with Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and Robert Parrish, you know. That, that was the point where Larry Bird was, you know, he'd get pulled out of the game and he's laying on his stomach because his back was so messed up at that point. So I never really got to see the glory days, you know, in terms of their success. By the time I was old enough to really appreciate being a Celtics fan, it was like the D Brown days where, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun cheering for them, but they weren't very good for a very long time. So Paul Pierce comes in and it took him a while. You know, obviously they needed to get Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen to make it a championship caliber team, but, uh, you know, He's, he's probably my favorite Celtic side, so and he seems like a fun guy to hang around, so I'd enjoy uh, playing around with him. Uh, kind of married into being a KU fan. My wife and her family uh, are Jayhawks, and so uh, he played there as well. So he would be my pick for one of my foursome. We had a thread on the board recently that said, if you could only watch one actor's movies for the rest of your life, what actor would you choose? I said Tom Hanks. Yeah, he's going in my foursome as well. And then I'm going to round out my foursome with Jerry Seinfeld, uh, get a little bit uh, observational humor in there. I think uh, my wife said, you know, I think Jerry Seinfeld could kind of be a jerk in real life. And there's a real possibility of that. But I think Tom Hanks and Jerry Seinfeld hanging out in the other card. I think Tom Hanks can keep Jerry Seinfeld in line. And uh, so that, that would be a, a fun day of golf right there. In terms of caddies, I don't know. Do we want to take real caddies here? If I'm going to do that, maybe I'm going to take uh, Michael Greller, Jordan Spieth's caddy. Uh, maybe he can get me to break 90 that day. Uh, I'll let the others in my foursome pick their caddy. Movie Buff asked, any update on Ralphie 6? Season is rapidly approaching. I'll tell you, this whole uh, lack of announcement for the, the next Ralphie has a lot of people concerned, and, and I don't blame them. We, you know, we are getting closer to that season opener, and it would be sad to, uh, especially given all the amount of time since Ralphie five retired to not have one lined up, but 
there's a lot that goes into training a, a new Ralphie that, frankly, I don't know. Uh, that I don't think any of us, aside from maybe if there's a Ralphie handler, listen, a former Ralphie handler listening to this, that uh, I, I don't know all of what goes into that. It can't be an easy process of taking a bison and getting it to to perform in that way. It's funny. The Ralphie program is is more quiet and even more tight-lipped than the coaching searches we've seen conducted by Rick George and Lance Carl at CU in. Rick George and Lance Carl have conducted some pretty tight lips searches. So that's saying something. Uh, Rick George was asked about this a couple of weeks ago, and even he just kind of danced around it. Uh, so I don't know all the secrecy there. I know that the new program manager for, for the Ralphie program had emailed me back a little while back and said that she would be available for an interview once they ever named the new Ralphie. But uh, until that time, I guess uh, – we're all just going to have to wait around, but I would agree that if they kick off against UNC and Ralphie six is not available, it'd be pretty disappointing. Ugly rat asked about the changing of titles of the recruiting department. I'm going to look into that. Hopefully have an insightful answer for you in the future. Idaho buff asked about, he asked for an update on chance Lytle's injury. Uh, we're going to get into preseason soon. So we'll get an update. Then um, it sounded like he was, still far away during spring ball, but on track at least, uh, you know, that they expected him to be in the mix this year. So hopefully that's the case. Got some men's basketball questions to get into here. Let's start with Troutman five. He asked who leads the hoops team in points. So obviously sitting here midsummer, we've gone through five of those pre Costa Rica trip practices. They're going to have five more in August. And then you, you get the long preseason with in terms of practices. So th- this could definitely change. If I had to make a prediction right now, I'm going to say Mason Faulkner, but I wouldn't say by a wide margin. Obviously, Mason Faulkner is coming off an ankle injury. He's not going to participate in Costa Rica, but he's played a lot of college basketball. They expect him to be ready to go by the time the season tips off. And so I'm going to go with him just from a, an experience standpoint. Uh, I would probably go Evan Batty, number two right now, and then Jabari Walker, number three. You know, I don't think those three could be pretty close together, especially if Jabari Walker stays out of foul trouble. I think those three guys could be pretty close in terms of their points per game average. Four right now, I'd probably go Keyshawn Bartholomew. I really liked what I saw out of him, you know, in those early summer practices. It's tough from there, you know, maybe five loss and love rain, six Eli Parquet, or maybe you could flip those around a little bit. Then you've got De Silva, Dominic Clifford, um, and then probably at the end of that rotation, maybe maybe Luke O'Brien and KJ Simpson would be a couple other guys if you're going to go one through 10 in terms of hierarchy, in terms of scoring. But, but again, we've got a lot of preseason basketball to get through before they tip off the season and that could change. But that, that's what I would say right now. Farhang asked, what are your thoughts on Batty or Parquet coming back for an extra year of eligibility in 2022? It would be Batty's seventh. Think Parquet has a chance at the next level? If so, does an extra year at CU help slash hurt? The way that CU's men's basketball program has been operating, it's kind of like eligibility wasn't paused last year. And it, it makes sense quite a bit. And you know, I don't think if if you're CU, you signed signed the number 11 ranked recruiting class in the country, the number one class in the Pac-12. If 
you have a lot of super seniors coming back. You know, these talented kids want to come in and play. And so it's a little bit different than football. And in basketball, too, you know, it was very unfortunate that the NCAA tournament got canceled a year and a half ago. But, you know, generally these guys got to play full seasons. You know, there are some cancellations of games from different teams last year, but generally they got to play. It wasn't a completely normal game and they had to deal with the whole testing aspect of it, but there was still an NCAA tournament this past season. And so I don't think it's egregious that they're, they're operating this way. And I think a lot of programs across the country are in terms of Evan Batty. I mean, that's a guy you'd love to keep in the program until he hangs up his sneakers. Right. But in fairness to him, yeah, he doesn't have the the length to play in the NBA, but that's a guy that can go overseas and, and make quite a bit of money playing professional basketball. And, you know, you kind of similar with Eli Parquet. Does he have a chance at the next level? Sure. Yeah. Defense is on an, on an elite level. His offense has gotten better every year. It's certainly going to have to get quite a bit better. I don't think he's an NBA guy coming right out of CU, but he's a guy that could put some time in the G league and has that time to focus on his shooting and his offensive game. He's a glue guy. And, uh, you know, I could see him potentially having a chance to make an NBA team. It's not going to be an easy road for him. Again, he's going to have to improve, you know, on the offensive end of the court. Uh, but, but even with him, even if his future is playing overseas, you know, you only have so many years to play basketball. And, you know, there's that risk of injury coming back. I don't know. I, I would be surprised if either come back. I, I feel like kind of approach this coming year like it's going to be their senior year because, uh, again, I would be surprised to see either of them back in the program a year from now. PA Buff asked, with so many new faces, there likely will be some surprises. Who on the team is most likely to break out and perform well above expectations? Who might have a challenging year? So in terms of surprises, yeah, there, there's so much of the focus is on the new faces and Evan Batty and Jabari Walker being back. So in terms of surprises, I would say that Keyshawn Bartholomew would probably be the most likely to fit into kind of the, the breakout performer category. You know, he had a couple good moments last year, but by and large, people were kind of disappointed with what he showed during his first year on the court with the Buffs. Tad Boyle said, hey, you know, what I told him after the year was that he was put in a really, really tough position. His minutes were periodic because we wanted to have McKinley Wright on the court as much as possible. I just love the leadership I saw at Keyshawn Bartholomew during those early summer practices. And he's a guy with a lot of talent. You know, there, there's a reason he was a four-star recruit coming out of high school. And so he's a guy that, you know, not a lot of people are talking about that I could see having a pretty darn good season this coming year. Nick Clifford is another name I would kind of throw in there. I heard by the end of last season in practice, he was starting to really push guys like Deshaun Schwartz. But by that point, you know, obviously they had uh, kind of their established rotation with, with guys that had been in the program. So it was going to be tough for him to get on the court, but he's a guy that I'm really anxious to see this upcoming season. PA buff also asked about a challenging year. I don't know. I, maybe Quincy Allen. He comes in with a lot of talent. He's got a lot of length, super long. I think he's going to be a great player, but uh, you know, it might take a year for him to get adjusted to the physicality at this level. And you also look at the fact that he played a very, very short senior season. I think it was only like five or seven games, something really small. And then he didn't play a junior season in high school due to injury. 
And then he didn't get club basketball the summer between his junior and senior year because of the, the pandemic. So he's a guy that just has not gotten a lot of game reps the last couple of years. So I don't know if you red shirts, uh, but Quincy Allen is a guy, if I had to pick one there, nothing against his talent. I just think from a physicality standpoint that it might take a little time for him to adjust to this level. Last question here on this podcast comes from NoHoBuff05. He asked, how do you see the minutes getting split at the one, two, three positions for men's basketball? Do you see Keyshawn and Faulkner playing alongside each other for long stretches? How has Neek progressed? Any word on how Quincy Allen has looked? Lovering, any surprise names being mentioned? So kind of falling in line a little bit with our last question. In terms of Keyshawn and Faulkner playing alongside each other for long stretches, sure. Yeah, I think between those two guys and Eli Parquet, you know, those guys are, are all going to play a lot of minutes. And so they'll be kind of interchangeable in there. And you look at the, you know, they're not as big as some, some of the Tad Boyle teams we've seen on the court during his tenure. So you're, you're going to see more guard heavy play this year. I mentioned with Dominique Clifford that uh, it sounded like he was progressing pretty darn well last season and anxious to see how he does with his Costa Rica trip to see if he really makes that next jump. Lawson Lovering, he asked about, uh, he, he looks pretty darn good out there. He's a guy that d- doesn't come in with this post skill set like we saw Josh Scott come in. I mean, that that's almost unheard of what Josh Scott showed up with in terms of post game. One thing with Lawson Lovering, it's like he does everything pretty darn good in Tad Boyle said that he's a guy that soaks things up, is really coachable. You tell him to do something one time and he does it. You don't have to harp on him with the same thing over and over again. So that's huge. He's a guy that maybe early in the season, I mean, he's coming from Wyoming basketball. And I know he played on a club team in Utah to try to improve the competition he saw on the club circuit. But again, he didn't get that last year because of the pandemic. So it's certainly going to be an adjustment for him. And that's why this these 10 practices this summer going over to Costa Rica is huge for his development, but they're still going to get into, you know, division one basketball games and it's going to be an adjustment for him. He's a guy, if I had to pick one guy that's going to really improve from game one to the end of the season, I think he's the guy to, to pick there. And so I'm anxious to see his progression. Any surprise names being mentioned? You know, I think because they signed the number one class in the PAC 12, you know, all these guys are kind of being mentioned, right? I think the most underrated guy in the class will be Julian Hammond. It's probably going to take some time for him to develop, but you know, he looks good running around out there. I don't think he's going to have a big impact on the team this year. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't really, it's different than football where you've got 85 scholarship guys and there always seems to be some surprise underrated names you can throw out there with basketball. Uh, it's a little bit tougher to do that. Maybe Keyshawn Bartholomew would be the pick there as well. Just again, a guy, that people aren't really talking about. You know, I know the diehards are, but the casual C fan might show up there and watch him play the season and go, wow, he's quite a bit better than he was last year. At least uh, that's the way it looks just watching those summer practices. So that's going to do it for this podcast. I'm heading to Portland with the family, going to get a little bit of time away from the laptop. Of course, we're still going to have content coming your way on buffstampede.com. I've got some recruiting updates coming your way. And uh, yeah, before we know it, uh, we're going to be kicking off camp. Like I said, I I plan to do a podcast with Brian Howell before that starts. We'll be jumping right into it from there. I'm I'm excited. It's this time of the summer where I'm usually, okay, I've got enough downtime. 
and I'm, I'm ready for some football. So thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll be back with a new podcast shortly. Mm-hmm.